Welcome to the morning community of Northridge Vineyard. Our deepest desire is that you will encounter Jesus as you listen in to our morning gathering. If you'd like to find out more about us, check out our website, northridge.org.au forward slash mornings. Yes, good morning, everyone. I'd, I'd love you to stay in that really quiet, restful place we just got to as you, um, as you listen to God's word this morning. Because sometimes our lives can be very chaotic and um, often what we hear in the midst of that chaos is not a great narrative. Sometimes the events that our lives take or the direction our lives take can be... Chaotic is probably the most polite word we can come up with. And so this morning as we just share God's word together, I just hope and pray that you stay in that still place where you know deeply the heart of God for you. We're, we're, we're continuing with the theme of King David, the man after God's own heart, and our theme has been honouring relationships. And um, so far, David's been a pretty impressive man. Um, Phil kind of kicked us off a few weeks ago, and we looked at David being anointed to be the next king when he's just a boy. God honours David before David gets a chance to honour God. But that chance comes up pretty quickly. We um, kind of skipped over then to David and Goliath and his little boy with a stone defeats the mighty Philistine warrior who dares to speak ill against the name of the God of Israel. David is honoured after he honours God. And then Bonnie shared with us the account of David and Abigail and how Abigail was able to act with courage and you know, real decision and she's able to help turn David's heart back from really taking his anger out on her husband, Nabal. And so our theme has been in how do we look at people in the Bible, how do we look at the way they're in relationship with one another, and how do we learn what it looks like today in practice to honour the relationships that we're in. And when things are going really well, when the the men and women in the Bible are acting with courage and honour, It's really good to see that and to want that in our own life as well. But today's reading, David is far from impressive. And um, we're going to look at a real, we're going to jump into chaos. And because when we we open the word, our hearts do resonate with the characters, with what's happening in the narrative. And it picks up on what's often happening in our own lives as well. And so in the midst of this place of chaos, there's a really good chance today that your heart's going to go somewhere that's not that restful place that we just finished up in worship today. Shall we take care of your heart this morning? I almost feel like today's reading needs a bit of a content warning. Please take care of your hearts this morning. Some of the events we're going to read this morning, they might be triggering of a past trauma either your own or someone that you know and love. Some of the themes we're going to look at are betrayal, manipulation, deceit and grief. And so I invite you to be guardians of your heart this morning. Know your heart. Be attentive to it as you listen to God's word. If you have a Bible do you want to, or a device, um, you want to open up to 2 Samuel? We're going to start at chapter 11. (laughs) 
it's a, it's a quite a long reading, but it's the kind of reading you just have to kind of jump into to get a, a sense of um, what's going on. It may be a very familiar story to you. Today might be the first time you've heard it. So um, I'm not going to read the whole lot, but it is fairly long, so let's, let's kind of jump into it. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, um, Joab is David's general, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing, you know, just a bit of light banter really. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king as well. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booze, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping out in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also. And tomorrow I'll then send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. We'll jump down to verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead... She lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife 
and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord said, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he had brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveller to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. What on earth happened? David, the man after God's own heart, who we've been reading about as the great hero of Israel. Today's reading sounds more like a series of relational train wrecks where relationships are completely dishonoured. So how did David, the man after God's own heart, get it so wrong? Right from the very outset in verse 1, David is not where he should be. He should have been off at war with his men, but he's idle. It's mid-afternoon, he's lying on the couch. And when he finally decides to get up off the couch, he goes up, goes up onto the roof to look over the city. I wonder what's going on in his mind. What's going on for David that allows the series of events to unfold before him? In the wrong spot, idle, He sees a woman bathing. And rather than turning and going straight back inside, he inquires after her. He finds out her name. He finds out that she's married. He finds out who she's married to. And then he decides to take her. And what the king wants, the king gets. Now, fast forward to 2019, reading this passage through our rise, our cultural awareness, looking at the power imbalance between these two, a possible conclusion is that David raped Bathsheba. And that's probably the main reason why I invited a great deal of self-care this morning. The stats for sexual abuse in our society are horrific. The stats for violence against women are horrific. This week, a woman, 38 weeks pregnant, having coffee with a friend in Western Sydney, was beaten horribly by a man. 
I was reading an article in a magazine. Uh, spiritual, it was called, the article was called Spiritual Direction and Survivors of Trauma. And it was reporting on some stats from the Sexual Violence Resource Centre in the US. And it states that perhaps one in three women have experienced some form of sexual violence. And it may be as high as one in six men. Now, these forms of violence can be um, non-contact, such as verbal, such as being exposed to pornography or being photographed without consent, or it can lead to the many forms and degrees of physical contact as well. But whatever, whatever form it takes, sexual abuse or violence towards anyone always leads to a place of shame and betrayal. David has completely dishonoured Bathsheba. And now for the snowball effect, Bathsheba is pregnant. So David brings in Uriah, the husband. And in verses 6 to 13, we read that David tries to orchestrate events so that people would naturally assume that the baby was Uriah's. David brings him back from battle, encourages him to go home to his wife, and when that, doesn't get, when that doesn't work, he gets him drunk, hoping that he will forget or perhaps not even stand by his convictions as a soldier in David's army. David has become desperate. When that doesn't work, he gives Uriah a message to take back to Joab with the instructions to put Uriah to death, to put him in the heat of battle, and when the day gets tough, to fall back and leave Uriah to die. It's getting worse, isn't it? And so now David has dishonoured Joab, his general, the man who has stood by him for years as David has fought to become king of Israel. He's forced Joab to follow and then issue the order himself to kill Uriah. And then there's also the collateral damage, isn't there? There were other men that fell that day. It seems as though David has totally, completely lost his way. Do you wonder what life might be like in David's house at the moment? Every time that child screams in the middle of the night? The baby, that is. The constant reminder of what has gone wrong. Of course, not all relationships are great. We have the marriage course to attend to that kind of thing. <laughs> but David and Bathsheba, every time they looked at one another, wondering perhaps what's going on in the other's mind, Bathsheba mourned her husband, and now she has another man. What about Joab and David next time they met? Soldiers in arms, valiant men who fought side by side. Do they look each other in the eye with that same degree of respect again? Or have things changed for them? I think shame hangs over this entire narrative. And that's where our relationships tend to go when things aren't going so well. Whenever there is betrayal or violence, where one party feels devalued or rejected or manipulated, it's as though shame is the natural conclusion. 
it's almost as though we are hardwired to go to a place of shame. And it takes a great deal of work and intentionality to find healing. In his book, get this for a title, Shame, Theory, Therapy and Theology. It's just a light read. (laughs) Stephen Patterson describes shame as toxic unwantedness. I was given this book earlier. I went to um, talk to the principal of Sarum College earlier this year. And he heads up the School for Human Flourishing. And so I wanted to talk to him about, well, what might human flourishing look like for people whose lives are not going well at all? And he handed me this book and said, read this and let's talk in a couple of days. And it talks about shame being this idea of being a toxic nobody, of becoming and feeling, or becoming invisible and feeling totally unwanted. That's where shame takes us if we don't pursue healing in our lives. Patterson goes on to describe in a later chapter a compass of shame with four basic defensive scripts or ways of living with shame. The first way is withdrawal, which most often will look like depression. It might also look like avoidance or self-imposed isolation. Back to verse 1, David's on his own, not where he should be, beside his men. What was going on for David before all of these events unfolded? The second way of living with shame would be to attack oneself. That can be intentional acts of self-harm or perhaps just habitual self-defeating ways or patterns of living through life. A third way is avoidance, which commonly will look like addictive behaviours. I spend a lot of my days during the week speaking to people who battle with addictions, be it drugs or addictive behaviours. Shame is always an underlying theme when somebody is struggling with addictive behaviours. Avoidance can also look like overachieving or perfectionism. Or it might even be dealing with one's own inner emptiness by pouring one's life out to care for others. Sometimes the way we handle shame looks pretty good when those are for others who are watching us. And the final way that we might deal with shame is to pass it on. That might be anger or it might be attacking and shaming others. Shame is always a destructive place for the way that we live our lives. Ultimately, I think shame is healed with the grace and love of God and a very real experience of that. But I also believe, importantly, that the healing of shame requires human input. Shame is given by others. It's imposed by somebody else, either through their action upon us or for how we have interpreted events that have been done or how, what we've done ourselves. So if shame is given by others, it requires others in the process of healing. We need to find somebody who loves and values us, who we can trust with our shame. Enter Nathan the prophet. Nathan honours David. 
In chapter 12, Nathan rebukes David. The secret is exposed. But David is loved rather than being shamed. And that makes all the difference. This conversation leads to David's repentance. And we see some of David's heart when we read Psalm 51. I don't know if you knew that this psalm was written after this event. And here's the title of the psalm. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Quite a title, really. But here are some of the words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Wash me thoroughly and cleanse me from my sin. Hide your face from my sins and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David is broken. The contrite heart refers to the, um, the action of crushing stone until it becomes a powder. I don't think the healing of shame is necessarily a gentle process. Nathan's courage and honesty is really quite bruising and yet tender. And David's heart is restored. I believe our world desperately needs men and women like Nathan who are able to lead people in the healing of their shame. People who are first and foremost safe, who can be trusted with the secrets we bear that might have become for us unbearable and who are able to respond with an abundance of love and wisdom and grace. These are the kinds of people our world needs because that is how shame gets healed. When we consider in our world today the extent of sexual abuse, addiction, depression, self-harm and anger, the signs of shame are very evident. But the reasons behind it are very well hidden. They are secrets born in silence. The initial step in David's healing appears to be quite straightforward. A random conversation about a baby you and David is led to repentance. But David starts off with a very secure sense of self. He's the shepherd boy anointed to be king, the giant slayer, the leader of the band of mighty men, the great warrior king of Israel. I'm guessing David's sense of self is pretty good, apart from this chapter. But often the causes of shame and the destructive life patterns begin from a very young age. And so these patterns and ways of thinking become very well entrenched. And the sense of self then is extremely vulnerable and fragile. 
Healing can take a long time. The Nathans of today are patient men and women, patient in their love and care. Men and women who can help another bear the unbearable, who can go there and be safe, above all else, safe, and who can lead with love and acceptance rather than with judgment. And they're the kinds of men and women that can bring honour where there has been dishonour. So I wonder today where your heart is. Have you been able to track your heart as we've shared this passage together? I would love it to be the case that all of our hearts have stayed in that still, quiet, restful place. But knowing our world, there'll be men and women here whose hearts might be thumping away this morning. And, you know, we can identify with each of the characters and sometimes we identify with more than one in a particular passage. But here's my invitation to you this morning. If you perhaps resonated a bit with David in this passage and something that you've done in life has been deeply shaming, or maybe you might resonate more with a Bathsheba or a Uriah, or a Joab. My invitation to you is not to do anything publicly this morning, but I invite you to consider who could I trust with what I'm carrying? Yeah, we've got, I'll pick on the front row here. <laughs> if after the service you want to speak to any of these guys, I invite you to do so. Or there might be somebody else in our congregation who you know loves and cares for you with that abundance and you know you can trust them. Will you go to them? One of the, um, the ways of living with shame is to avoid the situation. And so you'll hear that statement and you'll say, yeah, I'll, I'll get around to it during the week. And most probably you won't. So if there's something that's really thumping away at you this morning, I invite you to act just in the privacy of morning tea, just a, a conversation that says, hey, can I catch up with you during the week? Will you do that? And maybe you might have identified perhaps more with Nathan this morning. You have that sense of, I guess, that calling to be a healer in our world. Or maybe you're already travelling with somebody who you know is battling shame, who is battling with addiction or depression. And your prayer today might be, God, help me to love them better. Help, them, help me to be more patient in my love. Because it's hard to love somebody who's battling shame. Rather than separating the two, I'm going to invite you to all to stand. We're going to, we're going to say we're all going to be Nathan because the reality is we all are Nathan in some way in life. And I want to pray for you this morning that for the relationships that you're in, for the men and women that you're caring for, that you will know 
and abundance of God's love and care for you as you care for them. So let's pray together. Our loving God, we thank you that you do provide for us all of the resources we need for life. And so now, particularly this morning, we ask for those relational resources that we need to be good men and women, honourable men and women with the people that we love and care for. Help us to be people who can lead others in healing. And Lord, we pray for wisdom. We pray for more love. We pray for more patience. Will you bless us with those gifts this morning? We pray, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen. The last thought I want to leave you with today comes from Paul in Romans 8. It's kind of the high point of his, of his letter to the Romans. He starts off, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he finishes it with, And nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. That's my great desire for you this week. Thanks so much.